Well, when you can't stop, I think that's the biggest sign. Or people around you, like your children, are like, why aren't you paying attention to me? Get off that thing. You know about addiction. And often, you know, I think someone's addicted to something when it interferes with their ability to love, to work with the law or their own happiness. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to our episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Dr. Daniel Amen. Dr. Amen is a psychiatrist. He's also the founder of Amen Clinics, as well as a 12-time New York Times bestselling author, and he's one of the most influential experts on mental health and brain health. Today on the show, we discuss why overstimulating your brain can be dangerous, how to know if you're addicted to your screen, what you can do if you're feeling overstimulated or burned out, how parents can help their kids have better relationships with their phones, three things you must do to optimize your brain health, how to raise mentally strong kids, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Dr. Daniel Amen to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Dr. Amen, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much, Doug. What a joy to see you. It's good to see you again. And I think in the world that we live in, so many people are constantly on screens, they're constantly overwhelmed with life and everything. And that I think people might not be aware of the dangers of having their brain just constantly overstimulated all the time. Based on your experience and your work and brain scans, like why is overstimulating our brain potentially so dangerous? Well, because it wears out the pleasure centers in the brain. Whenever you get that little drip of dopamine and you push, 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 right, the thousands of times every day, People are distracted, um, looking for the next little high. It wears out a part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens, which is where dopamine works. And then pretty soon, you just begin to feel flat. Some people get depressed, and they need more and more in order to feel anything at all. And what are some of the the signs of somebody you think being overstimulated versus just, I mean, I feel like sometimes people can think that they're overstimulated when really they're just, they need to get a better night's sleep. So how can somebody differentiate between the two, those two things? Well, when you can't stop, I think that's the biggest sign or people around you, like your children are like, why aren't you paying attention to me? Get off that thing. You know about addiction. And often, you know, I think someone's addicted to something when it interferes with their ability to love, to work with the law or their own happiness. And the gadgets, you know, the really insidious part of the gadgets, it's causing people to become self-absorbed. And so it becomes all about their experience with the screen 
rather than their experience with the other people in their lives. Yeah, and I think the tough thing with screens is we we need them, right? In today's society, it's very similar to to food, right? Um, and with that said, it's I think a lot of people struggle to have a healthy relationship with something that we are dependent on every single day. I mean, do you think based on what you've seen that being addicted to a screen, just staring at a screen, scrolling, scrolling, scrolling should be taking as should be taken as seriously as other substance addictions? Yes. I mean, children, for example, who spend more than three hours with a screen have a higher incidence of anxiety, depression, and obesity. And the average child, teenager, spends three and a half hours a day. And so you see the skyrocketing levels of mental health issue. One of the reasons is the screens. What do you think people can do if they're feeling completely overstimulated? They're feeling like they're distracted. They can't be present with their kids, their family. Like, how can they begin to reverse some of this stuff? Well, detoxing, I think, is really good. Take time and turn it off. And if you can have, say, focused time on it, you can get your text done and your emails done. But for the majority of the day, not have it on, that would help people so much be happier and much more productive. People think being always connected makes them more productive, but it doesn't because it's a constant distraction. And we can't Adderall our way out of this, right? There's no amount of a stimulant that's going to fix the bad habits. And so for for yourself, like what are some of the daily things that you do every single day? I mean, you have a family, you have, you know, businesses to run, you're a busy guy. Like how do you maintain focus? How do you avoid distraction from your phone, which in many ways is, is a big part of your business? Well, for me, I start every day with today is going to be a great day. Um, I have focus time with my wife every morning. I have dedicated times to work and I'm always working on a project and not being distracted helps me be as productive as I am. I know that health and exercise, diet, all of that is super important for you. I know you're very passionate about it. What does your current like exercise nutrition routine look like so that you can, you know, optimize your overall well-being? You know, I'm pretty regimented. And I find that I like to do a couple of things at once. And so I have two huddles with my team in the morning. It's about 45 minutes, but I'm always walking or on a bike because uh, my team's national. And so, you know, rather than have them look at my face, I'm doing something active and then three, four times a week, I lift weights. I've been finding, I'm going to be 70 next year, that I do a lot of stretching exercises. And I find that is incredibly helpful to keep me out of pain. My diet is pretty much a very low carbohydrate diet because I'm at the weight I want to be, I'm strong like I want to be, I have obesity in my family, 
And if I ate a high carbohydrate diet, I'd be overweight. So I, I find for me, my energy's good, my cognitive clarity's good. And so I ate a lot of high fat, uh, high protein foods. So I got eggs this morning. I often make myself a shake to start the day, have a big salad with some form of protein, love nuts, uh, love avocados. That just works best for me. I read a book um, by uh, Chris Palmer, and he talked about the ketogenic diet, especially for mental health conditions. And I have a granddaughter who has pretty, pretty wicked seizure disorder. And on a ketogenic diet, her seizures have not been a problem. So I've been a fan of that diet. Now, there are good ways to do it and bad ways to do it. But most part, I stick with the good ways. And I know that, you know, when you're regimented and you're optimizing your health and wellness and improves your level of self-discipline and improves your mental health and improves your, your focus, have you seen like a brain scan where you've taken somebody who had a strong inability to focus and, and, and seen them implement things like health and exercise and seen like improvements in their scans? Oh, no question. I mean, one of my favorite, uh, I do a series on Instagram called scan my brain, take influential people and scan them and then treat them. And Troy Gloss, who was the 2002 world series MVP for the angels, uh, baseball, um, his brain was awful uh, because he was drinking too much and had four concussions. He's depressed, suicidal. And after just two months, supplements, diet, exercise, not drinking, brain is radically better. And now we're just about two years later and his life is radically better, which, you know, I'm just so excited for him, for his family. And for the mission, quite frankly, you know, with better brain always comes a better life. My mission in the world is to end the concept of mental illness by creating a revolution in brain health. What I've learned from the imaging work I do is most psychiatric problems, they're not mental health problems, they're brain health problems. And so I'm pounding the drum of get your brain right and your mind will follow. Along the same lines of brain health, I know for years people have come to you to improve their brain health and how all that relates to different types of addictions, different types you know, of anxieties, depression. Over the last few years, would you say that you've seen more people coming to you because of social media addiction and because they're just so addicted to their screens versus you know, five, 10 years ago? Especially among young people, what we're seeing is parents think they're doing a good thing by giving an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old a phone, and then the kids get violent when they try to put limits on the phone. I mean, clearly an addiction pattern. And I've actually had to send some kids away to, you know, screen addiction treatment programs. And I hate that. The longer you can not, you know, avoid giving kids screens, the better it is for their developing brains. I know you mentioned, you know, you have grandkids, 
your kids are a bit older. If you had a, a kid now that you were raising that was seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old, what kind of boundaries would you put in place with them to make sure that they, you know, have the healthiest relationship with a screen they possibly could? So I wouldn't give them phones until they were 14, 15, and they were responsible. Um, I actually have my youngest is 13 and my oldest is 47. So I, I have this uh, laboratory at home and I have grandkids from five to 13 and adore all of them. And the rule is you have no screen time until your homework's done. And then you can have like half an hour, maybe an hour max. And that's it. So if you put limits around it, then the companies that purposefully create them to be addictive. I mean, we just have to be honest with ourselves, Facebook and Google and Apple, they have neuroscientists because what they want is mind share because mind share equals revenue, you know, and it equals influence. So I think limiting them as much as you can with yourself and then with your children, it's just rational. Now, there are no studies that say, the you know, excessive screen time is a good thing for anybody. And do you think it's also equally important for parents to work on their own boundaries with their own cell phone use so that their kids can look at them and say, oh, my mom or my dad has is not on their phone that much. I don't need to be as well. Is that important? Well, I mean, every day you're modeling health or you're modeling illness, right? Kids don't do what you say. They do what you do. And so if you go, oh, you can't spend time, but you can't get your face out of your phone, they're, they're going to do what you do. And given the fact that so many people, I feel like when they're going to, to a screen or they're going to just scroll on their phone, it's when they're lonely. I think so many people get uncomfortable when they have nothing to do. They're like, oh, I'll just scroll on my phone. Have you found anything to be beneficial for the patients that you've worked with over the years to combat like alone time in a way that's healthy without just scrolling on a screen? Well, if you can reach out, I mean, I love this one exercise of appreciate somebody every day. So when you're feeling lonely, connect. I think of it almost like gratitude squared, right? I'm grateful for certain people or certain things in my life. But when I appreciate someone, I'm grateful and I share it, which will then come back to me. So if you could appreciate a different person every day for 30 days, radically change your life because it just helps you be connected. And the problem with screens is people become self-absorbed, becomes about other people watching them and or their followers and it becomes too much about them. When I'm too much about me, I'm much more likely to be unhappy. And I think as we've touched on, like one of the downstream effects of being overstimulated and spending too much time on a screen is people's inability to focus, whether it's on a project they're working on, whether it's on 
homework, whether it's just conversation, what are some some things that you found to be effective for somebody if they're trying to to regain control of their focus? Like what kind of like activities or practices could they do to work on that? Well, the first thing, you know, if you have homework for a child, taking a 20 minute walk before you do it will actually be super helpful for you. Um, having a high protein, low carbohydrate snack. I mean, I don't know if you remember, I, I don't know what you had when you were growing up, but for me, it could be cookies and a Coke. <laughs> it's like all that sugar, you're not focusing after that, right? You're like, whoa, and then it just drops you like a rock. But, you know, if you could have some nuts or turkey before you do a project, you're just much more likely to stay tuned in. Some people do better with quiet. Other people do better with music, not with words. Um, I, I would just strategize. You know, some of my books that I've written, I like find a song and just play it over and over and over again. And it just seems to help me tune in more. But everybody's different. If you really want to focus better tomorrow, go to bed a half an hour early tonight. We are, as a society, sleep deprived, which steals our attention span. Or you could be like my wife and do a cold plunge. That really boosts norepinephrine and dopamine and can help people focus. I'm, I'm not like bought into it completely because it's so painful. Do you do it often? Uh, my wife does. I do it every once in a while. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, like the, I remember the first time I got in, it was <laughs> it was a very painful experience on every single level for me. First time my wife did it, and she does it regularly now. She was just flapping around the pool. Uh, it was like 48 degrees. And then, you know, one of her teachers says, you need to be still because this is not doing you any good at all. What are your thoughts on manipulating time for focus? And the reason I say this is as a trainer, as, as somebody who's been a trainer for, for over 12 years, if somebody were to come to me and say, hey, Doug, I want to get more exercise in. I haven't exercised in 10 years. I'd be like, just go outside and start with like a five-minute walk. Keep it simple. Try to get the habit going and then reinforce that behavior. Would you say for somebody who's just been completely distracted for the last several months, several years, that something that could be useful is if they're trying to focus on a task, like sets like a timer or something for like 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and just work like laser focused during a, a time frame like that? So I like tiny habits, you know? Okay. So you haven't done anything for a long time. What's the smallest thing you can do? So put out your tennis shoes. I mean, it's the first thing. Just put them and you know once you do that for a couple of days and then put them on and then just do two or three minutes to start and then if you get them on and you get outside well it's are you going to do 10 minutes and then walk like you're late so there's a number of really fascinating studies show that head-to-head -head against antidepressant medication, walking like you're late for 45 minutes four times a week is equally effective. And so I'd work up to that. And remember this statistic. People who are 80, who walk three miles an hour, who can walk three miles an hour, have a 90% chance they'll live till they're 90. But people who are 80, who only can walk a mile an hour, 
have a 90% chance they are not living until they're 90. So walking like you're late is critical to blood flow, which will help your brain, but also help sexual function. So I know we've talked about like just things we can do to, you know, regain focus and then also talked about relationship with screens. You, you brought up sleep. Talk a bit about why sleep is so, I mean, paramount for focus, like why it's beneficial for the brain. And then what's your sleep hygiene like? So when you sleep, your brain cleans and washes itself. And so if you're not getting seven to eight hours of sleep at night, trash builds up and makes it much harder for you to have cognitive clarity the next day. So I'm always in bed by 10. I don't take red-eye flights. Actually, I don't take flights before 10 o'clock in the morning uh, because I don't want to disrupt my sleep. And I have a very specific routine. At bedtime, I say a prayer, and then I go, what went well today? And it's actually ritualistic where I go on a treasure hunt every night. So I start right at the beginning of the day and I just go hour by hour looking for even the smallest things I liked about the day. And, you know, like you, I'm really busy and cool things would happen. And I just completely overlook them. And, you know, the bad things that happen during the day will show up. But that's not the point. So I imagine a big broom and just sweep them away. For somebody who's listening to this and they're they're busy like us, they have, you know, kids running around, they got homework to do, all the things. What are like one or two things that you would recommend that every parent do to make sure that they're setting themselves up for a great night's sleep? Other than the obvious, like cutting out caffeine late at night, not eating too late, stuff like that. Or for some people, exercising at night will trigger them. Or watching a scary movie or something that's highly intense. And never go to bed after you just watch the news. It's like, why is the news on at 11 o'clock at night? Just to scare people before they go to sleep. Try to have a ritual where you just wind down, whether it's a bath or certain scents or uh, a meditation like I do or prayer. Um, try to routinize it on things you really like that you'll actually do. Yeah, I know my wife spent years, probably 12, meeting every night with my daughter. And it just was such a special time. And now my daughter's 20 and they're so close because of that ritualistic bond that they have. If I were a patient of yours and I were coming to you and I just said, Dr. Amen, like I'm ready to, to stop with these poor habits, poor behaviors. I'm ready to actually spend time investing in my, my overall brain health so I can be more focused, less stimulated. And you were just to say, start with these five things. I want you to do these five things every single day. No excuses. What would they be? The first thing is ask yourself this question multiple times every day. Is this good for my brain or bad for it? I mean, really take a deep dive 
into learning to love and care for your brand. So that's the mother tiny habit. So it's three seconds. Good for my brain or bad for it? Drinking decaffeinated tea. Good for my brain. So whatever you do, because your habits make you who you are. Uh, your habits and decisions make you who you are. The second thing I would do, you know, if you and I work together, I'd have you do an exercise called the one page miracle on one piece of paper. I'd want you to write down, tell me, well, what do you want? Relationships, work, money, physical, emotional, spiritual help. What do you want? And then I'd have you go, whenever you go to do something, just go, does it fit? Does this behavior fit the goals I have for my life? So, for example, with my wife, I want a kind, caring, loving, supportive, passionate relationship. I always want that, but I don't always feel like that. I get these rude thoughts that show up um, or these bad decisions that my brain will tease me with. And I'm like, does it fit? No. So I don't do the things that don't fit. And it's very important. It's not what I should do. It's what I want to do, right? These are my goals. And so if I go, oh, I want that chocolate fudge brownie. I'm like, well, there's nowhere on the one page miracle where that fits, right? Doesn't fit my physical health, my emotional health, my spirit. It doesn't fit. And so if I can stay with, does it fit? So clarity of goals, does it fit? What went well? I have all of my patients do that. So they get good sleep and direct their dreams to be more positive. If you are my patient, you would tattoo, at least tattoo in your brain, the phrase, is it true, right? We all have weird, crazy, stupid, sexual, violent thoughts that nobody should ever hear. I call them ants, automatic negative thoughts. And the way you kill the ants is you interrogate them, right? So if I get the thought, my wife never listens to me, I'm like, is that true? And it's not true. But just if you just having a negative thought, if you don't question it, if you don't correct it, you believe it 100%. And then you act as if it was true. And so is it true? It's absolutely essential. And then if you are my patient, I teach you diaphragmatic breathing. You want to break a panic attack in under a minute? Take four 15-second breaths where you take twice as long to breathe out as you breathe in. So what we have is brain health and focus and mental health, self-modulation. That's where we'd start. For you per personally, over the last like year or two, what's been an area of your overall health, brain health, mental health that you've put a lot of focus into? I'm trying to think if there's anything new. I wrote um, You Happier uh, a couple of years ago. And in there, I talked about 
a concept that I got from Dennis Prager that happiness is a moral obligation. And I'd never heard that. And growing up Roman Catholic, that was nowhere to be found. You couldn't find that in my home, at school, at church, nowhere. Because it's like, oh no, happiness is selfish. And then I heard Dennis Prager in a video called Why Be Happy uh, talk about it as a moral obligation. And I love that because both you and I and everybody listening, we're, we're all contagious. So if I'm unhappy, I'm negatively impacting those people around me. And so I love this concept I came up with, which was the micro moments of happiness. Can I focus on, well, what are the smallest things I really like? So I live on the water in Newport Beach and I saw a dolphin and a baby dolphin this morning. That's totally making the highlight reel tonight. Or, you know, the most gorgeous pelicans uh, or sea lions. I just love that. Or butterflies or hummingbirds or you know, a text from one of my kids or one of my grandkids. I'm learning where you bring your attention always determines how you feel. And people go, oh, but it's such a terrible time. And I'm like, it's always been a terrible time. You know, if you grew up in the 50s like I did, you know, when I was in kindergarten, I had to like hide under my desk because we were worried the Soviets were going to nuke us. Or, you know, if you grew up in the 60s, well, that was a shit show. So, you know, there's always a, a reason to be unhappy. But likewise, there's always a reason to be happy. Obviously, you're big on happiness. You just mentioned that. Big on optimizing your overall well-being and brain health. If you were to tell somebody to put their focus in into like three to five things to to make sure that they're just living a overall good quality of life? Like what have you found to be most beneficial when talking to your patients, seeing the brain, the brain scans and, and that sort of thing? Well, I just filmed my 18th public television special on raising mentally strong kids. I wrote this script around seven core conversations. So if I was going to talk to one of my kids and they actually listen, about raising mentally strong kids. Well, the first conversation is brain health, right? Get your brain right and your mind will follow. You got to get your brain right and you got to help the kids, which means you probably shouldn't let them play tackle football or hit soccer balls with their head because they're brain damaging activities. So brain health is first. Bonding is second. You want influence over other people in your life, they need to trust you. They need to be connected to you. And bonding requires two things, time, actual physical time, and a willingness to listen. So I teach all of my patients about active listening. And then um, clarity or rules, my favorite rule. Talked to my daughter about this last night with my five-year-old granddaughter, because I, I saw her, you know, like begging for something and my daughter about to give in. And I'm like, the rule is, if you have a tantrum to get your way, the answer is no. It's always going to be no. 
go for it. Throw the tantrum. And you have to be clear because if you give in to that kind of behavior, you make it much more likely to happen. Problem solving. I think parents do way too much for children and they don't allow their kids to experience the pain of mistakes and that wears out their self-esteem. When I was a young parent, I got self-esteem by doing for my children. And if I had to redo it, I never would have done that. I'm like, how can you solve that? Tell me how you can do it. Do you want to hear how other kids would do it? But, you know, when we got really smart, uh, Chloe, our 20-year-old, Tana was really struggling with her for homework. And I looked at her and I'm like, you've done second grade. You need to get out of this fight. Uh, she took a program I love called Parenting with Love and Logic. And she announced to Chloe, I am never going to ask you to do your homework again. It's on you to do. And if you don't do it and you're sort of okay with the consequences of your teacher being unhappy with you, it's up to you. And if you really don't do it, you'll make new friends when you repeat second grade. And um, Chloe had a fit, but 20 minutes later came back and did it. And no one ever talked to her about homework again. And now she's a junior in college doing phenomenal. Don't do too much. You want your children to make mistakes when the consequences are afforded. I, I think that's just so important. And then, of course, you got to notice what you like more than what you don't like and get them help when they need it. You brought up a really good point because I think, like you said, like a lot of parents have a hard time seeing their kids struggle. And especially like you said, if you get like you got self-esteem validation from fixing problems from your kids. But then like I just think the other the other side of that could pose problems as well. It seems where you're just imposing tough love like all the time. Parents do that as well. Like looking back now, like how would you maybe have a healthy balance between the two where if like your kid came home and like failed the test? Like you're not going to go talk to the teacher, but would you help coach or talk to them about how to approach the teacher to like redo the test? I'm just trying to think of a real life example that parents struggle with today. Well, if you failed the test or when one of my kids failed the test, the first thing you go is what's the goal? What do you want to get out of school? And hopefully you're teaching them this is how you're going to become educated and give yourself way more options. And life. That's I always talk to kids. You just want options. So you're the one that chooses your life path rather than somebody else chooses it for you. And what what I want to do as a parent, and I want other parents to do, is well, tell me what happened. How can you fix it? If they start blaming the teacher, I teach them. You know, as soon as you blame someone else for the problems you have, you're a victim and you can't change anything. So what can you do? And, and you know, some kids will go, I can't do anything. I'm powerless. And then you could go, well, you want to hear what other kids may have done. So you can give them suggestions. But for you to go to school and rip the teacher 
is causing your child to have no power and their self-esteem will go down. The more you solve their problems, the less sense of agency or self-efficacy they will have. So for example, if my daughter forgot her homework, there was no way my wife was bringing it to And she only forgot it like twice. Or if she didn't bring a sweater on a cold day, or she forgot her lunch, there was no way Tana was bringing that. And Tana would feel terrible about it. But she wanted to teach Chloe, like the most important lesson you can teach your children, self-efficacy or agency. She wanted to teach Chloe she's responsible for her life. So a lot of parents would say, well, if I call them out for not doing their homework or whatever, I'm just holding them accountable. What I'm hearing you say is the better form of accountability is them not doing their homework, them getting their grade at the end of the school year, the semester, and they're essentially being held accountable by themselves by the work they didn't do. Am I, am I correct? Right. And if you pay for grades, kids are going to be much less motivated than if they feel good about getting good grades, right? In fact, there's research that shows if you give them money for good grades, their grades and their motivation tend to go down. You want the motivation to come from them. What do you want? What is your behavior getting you what you want? And, and I've seen a lot of difficult kids over the years. And for me, it always, you know, I mean, mean, nasty, argumentative. And I always start with, what's the goal? What kind of relationship do you want with your mom or your dad? And is your behavior getting that? And, you know, initially they may be blaming them or shaming them. And I'm like, so what do you do? about it? What can you control? It's this victim mindset that leads people to live ineffective miserable lives. Absolutely. And when it comes to, I guess, just to put a bow on the focus for kids and, and screens and stuff, let's just say there's a kid who, a parent who's listening to this, who has a kid like in high school where they're at the appropriate age to have a, have a cell phone in, in your eyes. How can parents help their kids like optimize their focus at home when they're coming home from school, they got schoolwork to do, they got studying to do and, and stuff like that? Take the phones at night. I think that's really important um, until they're 17 or 18. If you're paying for the phone, you need the password for it. Uh, and kids hate when you check. And they hate it more if you don't check because they think you don't care. Well, Dr. Amen, I think this is a great place for us to end our conversation. I wanted to thank you so much for your time, for your wisdom, for your knowledge. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I think the audience is going to as well. If people want to learn more about the Amen Clinics, they want to learn more about your work, what you do, your books, where's the best place to do that? So, amenclinics.com. So, Amen, like the last word in a prayer, clinics.com. Uh, my new book is Change Your Brain Every Day. Um, and they can follow me on TikTok or Instagram. Amazing. Well, I'll be sure to include the links to that stuff in the show notes. And thanks again for your time. I think the audience is going to get a lot of value out of this conversation. Great. Thanks, Doug.